Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Come Follow Me, Disciples Journey. This episode will cover Helaman chapter 7, 8, and 9. Let's jump right in. So in Helaman chapter 7, Nephi starts with him visiting the land north, trying to teach people they didn't like it, so he leaves. Um, uh, How much did they not like it? They rejected all his words. So uh, he, and it just, the words here are interesting to me because it says that he could not stay among them. So sounds like there, he was probably, my guess, physical danger, honestly. I mean, that would not be unprecedented, right? Uh, We have plenty of examples in the Book of Mormon that we've studied this year of people rejecting the words of the prophets and to the point of saying, hey, yeah, we should probably kill that guy. And it's like, man, that is, you don't like that so much you want to kill the guy. All right. Um, And we learn something very interesting, and it's not the only place we learn it, but it's almost uh, just as a reminder slash solidifies what the Gadians were trying to do and what they were about. They were not just some band of, of uh, like, like a gang, right? They, uh, the Gadiant robbers filling the judgment seats, having usurped the power and authority of the land. They were in power. They sought political power. They wanted to be in the seats of power so that they could dictate what was happening. It's what the secret combination of the Gadiant robbers was about. And as you remember, Look, look at it in our day. Look for it in our day. Helaman, or um, Mormon and Moroni trying to warn us. It's not, it is, there are these secret combinations, and I think, uh, who is it? Elder, uh, not, uh, President Ballard, I think, has spoken about it and has said, has listed some of the things that qualify as secret combinations. And and in that, he, he lists, you know, like gangs and, and whatnot, things like that. Uh, but as I mentioned in the uh, last episode last week, the secret combinations that Mormon and Moroni are seeming to warn us about had these, had something in common and they were people who sought for political power so that they could rule over the people. Um, so that's the situation that's going on when he, when Nephi, leaves the land northward, comes back to Zarahemla area. And in verse 5, it says that uh, these people, the Gadiant robbers, and not in the least a right before him, doing no justice unto the children of men. So they were doing nothing. They weren't following the commandments at all. And it says they were condemning the righteous because of their righteousness. And that phrase right there reminds me of this thing that I've kind of coined I don't know, maybe some, maybe I heard it from someone else, but it's kind of this recurring thought that I've had in my life. And it's just, so I call it the paradox of intentional discipleship. And basically what that means to me is that whenever you are intentionally righteous, intentionally trying to follow Christ, uh, trying to obey the commandments, you will undoubtedly face some persecution and some trials and headwinds and resistance and opposition. It's easy to think, oh, well, look, and as we read the Book of Mormon, we read, we read hey, if you're righteous, you'll prosper in the land. And that sounds like a good thing, prospering, yay. And, and so it can be easy to think that as we are righteous, that 
life would be easier. The Lord will bless us. The Lord will clear our path. And in and in a sense, that is 100% absolutely accurate. But we need to remember that what Christ said to his disciples, that he doesn't offer the world's peace. He offers his peace. And it's different. Like Isaiah says in chapter 55, God's ways, his ways are not man's ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways and thoughts higher than ours. They're different. And so if we're, if we're expecting this worldly prospering, that may, that, that, and that does come. And those, those types of blessings do come when needed and as needed. Absolutely. And I'm not discrediting that because we have to go back to Mosiah chapter two, verse what 41. And moreover, I would, they should consider upon the blessed and happy state of those who keep the commandments of God for they are blessed in all things, both spiritual and temporal. So I'm not discounting that. But what I am saying is that if we're expecting life to be easy because we are righteous, we will be greatly disappointed. The paradox of intentional discipleship is that as we are intentional about our discipleship, and as we are actively choosing faith, and actively choosing hope, and actively choosing charity, and choosing Christ, opposition will assuredly come. And these people... They, they were condemned because of their righteousness. Life would have been, life, physical, mortal, temporal life would have been easier for them to reject Christ, to reject his teachings. But that's not the, that's not the easy way in the long run. And so that reminds me of the question, is the gospel easy? Is it easy to live the gospel? Is it easy to walk the, the path of discipleship? And I, I love to go back to C.S. Lewis, surprise, surprise. And he talks about, you know, if, if I was paraphrasing, if a, if a student, uh, if a class is given an assignment and they're said, and, and the teacher says, your due date is three weeks from now. One student goes home and does a little bit each day. And so by the time in three weeks come, they're done and ready, right? And maybe for those three weeks, they get to play with their friends a little bit less each day because they had to spend 30 minutes after school doing this project. While their friend, who got the same assignment, was procrastinating it, was out having fun, for three weeks did no work. That was easy, right? Well, the night before, and you have to throw everything together and you've procrastinated everything, who was it really easier for? That's for that's for you to decide and judge. And that's the way that C.S. Lewis uh, talks about whether or not that living the gospel is easy. Because, yeah, there's a little work to go into it now. But in, when it comes to the judgment day, it seems like maybe living the gospel in comparison to uh, the guilt that we could be racked with may be a little bit easier. Um and so, anyway, yeah, that this that that line this week stood out to me that they were conde- the righteous were condemned because of their righteousness. And so, Nephi then gets up on this some sort of tower next to this highway. We know that it's a well-trafficked place. It goes to the main market where they do a lot of their commerce. So it's there's going to be a lot of people. He gets up and he starts praying out loud, and he starts to notice that the people have stopped and are listening to him, and he says. Why have you stopped to gather here? Did you did you stop here so that I could tell you how wicked you are? Perfect. And in verse thirteen, you can like hear the sarcasm in in 
in Nephi's words here. Behold, why have you gathered yourselves together that I may tell you of your iniquities? Yea, because I got upon my tower that I might pour out my soul unto God because of the exceeding sorrow of my heart, which is because of your iniquities. You, are you here to hear how sad I am because you guys are so terrible? Is that why, is that why you're stopping here? Um, and then in verse 16, I love this verse because of there's, there's this word in here that uh, just money to me it, because it, it could have, he could have used any other word and it still would be a great verse, but it's just so descriptive to me. Um, and I'll, so I'll read it and then I'll talk about it. It says, yay. How could you have given away to the enticing of him who is seeking to hurl away your souls down to everlasting misery and endless woe? Everlasting misery, endless woe. Okay, let's go back to Helaman chapter 5, verse 12. It shall have no power over you. So he said, I'm going to start in the middle, by the way. That if you build your... I'll read the whole thing. It's worth it. Change my mind. Read the whole thing. And now, my sons, remember, remember, that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation. That when the devil shall send forth his winds his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. What did he just say? In verse 16 of chapter 7, yea, how could you have given away to the enticing of him who is seeking to hurl away your souls down to everlasting misery and what? Endless woe. He used his dad's words. They had not built on this foundation. And so he's saying, you guys didn't build on the foundation. My dad, I've been trying to teach you what my father taught me to build on Christ. You haven't done that. You've so easily given yourself away to Satan. And what does Satan want to do? He doesn't want to just, you know, it's this, here's like this, this interesting, the reason I love the world, by the way, the word I love in that verse is hurl. Because we read in Nephi, one of Satan's, uh, tactics is to lead us with a flaxen cord until he can bind us with his strong cords and thus he leads us carefully down to hell, right? But we learn here from from this Nephi by the way, it's the second Nephi and that's where that is, right? But then we learn from this Nephi here in Helaman that what Satan really wants to do is hurl us into the gulf of misery and endless woe. And so I talk about in the in the overview episode this week, episode one of this week, about remembering. These people had failed to remember. They were not built upon the foundation. And they were quick to turn back to their iniquity, quick to forget the Lord, quick to turn to Satan and yield to his enticings. And what does he want? He doesn't want your happiness. He doesn't want you, he wants you to be miserable just like he is and, in, and throw you, hurl you into this gulf of misery and endless woe. In verses uh, 20 and 21, Nephi says, Oh, how could you have forgotten your God in the very day that he has delivered you? Remember the great things that the Lord has done for them in the last, and if you if you go just 60 years, you can go even less than that in their history, but the many times they'd been delivered is it's insane. And yet he's saying, how could you, in the very day that you, you've been delivered. This is reminiscent of uh, Nephi talking to his brothers Laman and Lemuel in chapter 17 and saying, how can you forget the Lord? 
remember Moses and their and their captivity, and so that makes you think back. It's very reminiscent of Moses saying to the children of Israel, "Guys, what are you doing? They all they've got they they had to wander in the wilderness for forty years because they kept forgetting that the Lord had delivered them out of Egypt. They kept forgetting the." The plagues. Remember the plagues, guys? Plagues on plagues on plagues. Remember those things, guys. Remember that the Lord did all these things and we got we were we were slaves and now we're not. We escaped the Pharaoh's army. Literally the water separated and we walked through it. And now here you are worshiping a golden calf. What what is going on? What in the world? And it's the, it's the same thing that Nephi is saying here. It's the same thing that Nephi, first Nephi, said to his brothers Laman and Lemuel. And that's why, and I tell you back in the in the opening episode that I the thing that I kept hearing from the Spirit was, "What matters most, and remember it," because most often in our lives, especially to those of us who have had the gospel in our life for a long period of time, it's not necessarily that we need to learn something new to focus on. We have to remember remember what to focus on. Children of Israel, why are you focusing on that golden calf? I'm up here in Sinai. Look to the heavens. It's lit- there's there's a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire, and it rep- they I'm guys. There in Exodus, in Sinai, there was this. It was like lightning, and there. But what it represented was the presence of the Lord, and the children of Israel were, were afraid to go up. So Moses went up himself, but the children of Israel were afraid to go up because they recognized they're looking up, like literally looking up to God, okay? But then by the time he comes back down, golden calf. What? But that's how people are. And that's as we that's what Nephi is shouting at us. That's what he, Mormon's going to shout at us in chapter 12 is stay focused, stay focused. Um, I don't know if, how many of you guys have seen the movie Up. With the dog Doug, and he's he can talk. He's got this little voice box thing, and he can talk, and he'll be talking, and then a squirrel. And it's funny, and it's you know it's kids show, and it's com- comedic. That's but that's us as the nat- that's the natural man in us is like we're focused, we're on Jesus, and then squirrel, and then we're not. And so the Lord's the Lord's always constantly having to prod us back, prod us back. And that's what Nephi is saying to these people. In verses 22 and 23, Nephi warns them, Look, you think the Lord is going to grant you strength that you've had before? No, he's not. For behold, thus saith the Lord, I will not show unto the wicked my strength to one more than the other, save it be unto those who repent of their sins. So his arm is always stretched out, right? He said, if you repent, you can you can have my power, but I'm not going to show my power to the wicked. And this is a common theme. Mormon chapter 2, verse 13 Mormon starts to think that his people were righteous and because they start to to be sad and he's like thinking, okay, yeah, they're repenting. They're, they're feeling godly sorrow. But then he's disappointed because all they're feeling is they were sad that God wouldn't let them prosper in their wickedness. They couldn't have their cake and eat it too, right? You couldn't keep the cake if you've already eaten it. You got to choose one or the other here. Um, and so ne- Nephi then... Uh, moving into chapter eight, in in perilous times, what is he? What is and in in his warning, what does he turn to? 
he turns to the scriptures, he turns to prophets, and he quotes and cites uh, Abraham, Moses, Zenic, uh, Zenus, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lehi, Nephi. So that's one Abraham, one Moses, two Zenus, three Zenic, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lehi, Nephi. He quotes nine prophets from Old Testament times all the way up to the, into their the New World, Nephi and Lehi. And what did they all testify of? They all testified of Jesus Christ. And so now he pivots from his warning of you guys are wicked to what do they need to do? Focus on Christ. What do, what do we need to focus on, right? He's he's told them, you've forgotten. You're, off, you're looking at the squirrel. You're looking at the golden calf. Where do you need to look? Jesus. All of these prophets have testified of Jesus Christ. What do the people say? Well, it, why do you suffer this man to revile against us? For behold, he doth condemn all of his people under the destruction. Yea, and also that these our great cities shall be taken from us, that we shall have no place in them. And now we know this is not, uh, this is impossible. For behold, we are powerful and our cities are great. Therefore, our enemies can have no power over us. So I don't know if you guys pay attention very much, but if you if you paid any attention to reading the scriptures in the Book of Mormon and the Bible at all, what you would know is that those words are famous last words. When the people talk like that, that is that is a people who is ripe for destruction. When they say we have all the power, when we say when they say we can't, this city we're we're too powerful, this can't be destroyed. I mean, the one that comes to my mind readily is the city of Ammonihah when Alma went and taught them and they said almost this exact same thing. And then in one day, bingo, uh, destroyed, utterly desolate. The, I mean, Christ testified about Jerusalem and the temple being, there wouldn't be a, a stone left one on top of another. And uh, about, what, I th- what is it? I think 70-ish years. Um... I might be getting confused here. It's either 70 AD or 70 years after Christ's death, somewhere in that time. That's exactly what happened to the to Jerusalem, and they 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 they're like, no, that could never happen. Yeah, not a good, not a great, not a great look, not a great way to, uh, <laughs> not a great attitude to have, unless you like to be destroyed. Then it's great, and it works perfect. Um. So then, as a witness against, uh, sorry, as a witness against wickedness. Nephi refers to the Old Testament and the brazen serpent specifically. And he says, uh, by the way, you can read about this in uh, in the Old Testament and Numbers chapter 21, I think is where there's quite a bit of this. And uh, let me check. My, yep, that's my notes say. My notes say Numbers 21. Uh Neil A. Maxwell, talking about this, says, Divinely deliberate and serious symbolism is involved in the brazen serpent. That's what he's talking about. Without this, need, without this needed elaboration, the Old Testament episode of the fiery serpents does not give us a fullness of the spiritual insight that can clearly be for our profit and learning. The symbolic emphasis in this episode is upon both the necessity and the simpleness of the way of the Lord Jesus. Ironically, in Moses' time, many perished anyway. The promise for the future is as follows. And as many as should look upon the serpent should live. Even so many as should look upon the Son of God with faith, having contrite spirit, might live even unto life, which is eternal. So, by the way, this is not the first time that this exact story has been referenced. 
First Nephi 17, Nephi references it. Alma chapter 37, Alma reference, references it in talking to his son Helaman. But what Elder Maxwell teaches us is this. The symbolic emphasis in this episode is upon both the necessity and the simpleness of the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, The serpent represents Christ. And so that's where Nephi starts. And so he can say, this is, this is Christ. The simpleness, look to Christ and live. And as many as should look upon the serpent should live, even as so many as should look upon the Son of God with faith, having a contrite spirit might live even unto life which is eternal. Stop looking at the squirrel. Stop looking at the worldly things. Remember back in chapter 7, he had said, he said, Yea, how could you have been given way to the enticing of him? Stop looking at the worldly enticement. Stop looking at the sensual, pleasurable, carnal, devilish things. Look to Christ and live. He then goes in and quotes uh, more people. We get Zenic and Zenus and Isaiah, Isaiah, lost scriptures, lost prophets who all testified. But obviously, if he's referencing them, they would have had reason to know about them. So we can probably assume that they were on the brass plates. Nephi also references uh, Zenic and uh, Nahum and Zenus. Jacob chapter 5, the allegory of the olive tree, Jacob took from Zenus. And so obviously... It predated them, and so we can assume probably that it came from the brass plates and that these people would have reason to know who they are. Uh, but then he also says this. He also says, Nephi also testified of these things, and also almost all of our fathers, even down to this time, have testified of the coming of Christ and have, what have they done? And this again, this is this, and I, I, I try to share with you what I learned, and I hope that it helps. I hope, but I also hope that you find your own lessons and apply to your own life. But what I learned was, and it kept jumping off the page to me, was this: all of almost all of our fathers, even down to this time, yea, even uh, yea, they have testified of the coming of Christ and have what looked forward. What were they? What were they focused on? What were they looking? They were looking at the brazen serpent. They were looking at Christ. They had their focus right. They remembered. What was most important of things that mattered most? And he manifested himself unto them, and they were redeemed by him, and they gave unto him glory because of that which is to come. Eternal, looking forward. The work of the atonement. What is what is the work and glory of... So he says that they were redeemed of him, and they gave unto him glory. The work and glory... Behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the eternal life, uh, immortality and eternal life of man, right? So how did these be, these prophets who testified to them, how did they give him glory? Well, first, they taught about him. Second, they lived like him. Third, because of their repentance and faith in him, we have reason to believe that they have received immortality and, e- and eternal life, thus giving him glory. So, to uh, cap out the chapter, Nephi says, you guys have rejected all this, and instead of focusing on this, what have you? What are you focusing on? You're laying up for yourselves uh, treasure on earth that can be decayed, and you're ripening for destruction. How ripe are you? Well, let me tell you. Your chief judge is dead. What? And he's like, go look, you'll find him. And I'm going to tell you who killed him. It was his brother. And guess what? Remember what we learned into the beginning of chapter 7? That the, the Gadians uh, 
had t- filled judgment seats. Well, they had ascended all the way to the chief judge seat because the chief judge and his brother were both Gadianton robbers, is what Nephi says. So, chapter nine. Uh, they send a bunch of they send a bunch they send four guys to go check on the the judge, and they're they're talking and they're saying, "All right, this is crazy. If this if this guy's really dead, Nephi's for sure, for real." So they get there, and uh, they see the judge dead. They do this thing that, for some reason, seems to be this customary. Uh, my guess is that it was customary because, as a show of reverence and awe for something powerful, they fall down, almost probably like in a worshiping type of fashion of like that they that they're recognizing that that Nephi had prophesied something because when they get there, the chief judge is dead, and. So then the people come in, they find them there, and they think, hey, he's dead. These guys are here. They probably killed him. So they're going to be uh, put on trial, basically. And one of the most condemning verses of the people in general, uh, I think, comes from verse 10. So not only had they allowed these Gadiant robbers to take hold of their chief judge seat and all, and the power and usurp the power of the government. But it didn't seem to bother them because now it came to pass that on the morrow, the people did assemble themselves together to mourn and to fast at the burial of the great chief judge who had been slain. He was a terrible person. He was in the, he was a part of a secret combination. He was a Gadiatan robber. He had usurped power. And yet they, they mourned his death. Now, I'm not saying we should celebrate the death of of people, but man, is it a bad thing when a wicked leader dies? I don't don't think we need to mourn that death as a people. But I think that that verse, to me, is is a condemnation of where the people of Nephi were. They had fully accepted the Gadiantans and recognized that them as their leaders and were fine with it and in fact mourned when their leader died who was a member of this secret society so then they're saying hey where are these four people that we sent and they're like oh we don't know about those four but we got these four who killed them so then they go to find out and they're like oh those are the same guys so the judges start to question them and they say now as for this murder uh, they say now it came to pass that the judges were, did expound the matter unto the people and did cry out against Nephi saying behold we know that this Nephi must have agreed with someone to slay the judge and then he that he might declare unto us that he might convert a, unto us his faith that he might raise un, himself to be a great man chosen of God and a prophet right in front of them was a miracle so here again we get emphasized that miracles do not build faith Nephi prophesied something that only God could have told him about. And instead they sought for any other, anything else. They thought they sought for any other explanation possible. This echoes is gets echoed again later in Helaman chapter 16, but it says that this is, this is the attitude of the people. Then they say some things they may have guessed right among so many, but we all, we have, but behold, we know that all these great and marvelous works cannot come to pass, which has been spoken. Uh, he, he guessed this right, or he conspired to do it with someone else. They can't see the miracle right in front of them. And so, two things I want to share about that. First, miracles don't build faith. Second, 
See the miracles that are in front of your face. See the miracles that are happening in your life. Because if you already have faith in Christ, what miracles can do when you see them is they serve to confirm your faith in Christ and build it and edify it and fortify it. See the miracles that are around you. So Nephi then has to prove himself again. Uh, I do love verse 21. He just he just tosses some uh, I don't know, condemnation at him one after another. He says, oh, f- you fools, uncircumcised of heart, you blind, you stiff-necked people, just one after another. Boom, boom, boom. He's like, look, all right, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go talk to his brother, the chief judge's brother, and you're going to say X, and he's going to say Y. And then you're going to say X, and he's going to say Y. And he tells them you're gonna, exactly how it's going to happen. So then they go, and it lay, unfolds exactly how he said and it came to pass, they went and did even according to as Nephi had said unto them. And behold, the words of which he had said were true. For according to the words, he did deny. And also according to his words, he did confess. And the brother ends up confessing. And so then people are like, holy cow, Nephi didn't do it. And he has no idea who this guy is. And the, or the, the brother has no idea who Nephi is. So they didn't conspire together. He, he, he legit prophesied that. And then what happens is you get this problem where people didn't remember. And the rising generation weren't taught. Only some of them, uh, now there are some among the people who said that Nephi was a prophet. Some. To me, that tells me that they didn't even know what to call him. Because then it says, and there were others who said, behold, he is God. For except he was a God, he could not know all these things. They They hadn't been taught to recognize what a prophet looks like or what a prophet does. Or what a or what a prophet is, so the only their only explanation was this got to be God. The rising generation had not been taught, the parents had not remembered, so then therefore the children, the rising generation now now there could not remember. Uh, and we as uh, members of the church, as disciples of Christ, need to make sure that we remember and that we teach our friends, our family, our children, so that they can recognize a prophet and true doctrine, so that they can recognize the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, so that as President Nelson has been urging us, we can hear him. There's a lot of tumultuous noise going on in the world right now. And our friends, our family, our children They won't know what to call the word of the Lord. They won't be able to recognize the word of the Lord unless we teach them what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like. And the people of Nephi's time, Nephi's day, they had failed to do that. And so that only some of them could even recognize Nephi as a prophet, as one who spoke for the Lord. And that as we, and as we put forth the effort to remember and to teach those around us what it looks like, sounds like, feels like, we and they will be able to hear him through all the noise. Cutting a, a, a pierce to the, to, the, to the core. It, will, it, it goes through everything straight into us, spirit to spirit. But you have to recognize it. You have to be worthy of it. And you have to know what it, what it is. Uh, so then, uh, as we get into chapter 10, Nephi is going to be pretty discouraged because 
this the dissension i guess really uh, amongst the people that they can't can agree some saying this others saying that and that ends up just you know, there's more conflict and there's just more unbelief so that's where we're going to start um with uh, with chapter 10 in next episode so chapter 10 and 11 next episode thank you for joining me in this episode i hope you will join me uh uh, on the next episode. I just said episode so many times. How many more times can I say it? Next episode.